Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to 2022. I am Jared Sexton. I'm here with Nick Houseman. Happy New Year's, Nick. Happy New Year. How are you feeling about this year? How are you feeling going into this 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 new frontier? I mean, just look at how I accentuated that phrase, Happy New Year. I went Happy New Year, not Happy New Year. And I think that means that I'm just thankful that it's a, it's something we can start over with, but I don't know how, how you know, amazing I feel about the actual year itself. It's, it's almost like putting your foot out there and testing the ground a little yeah. bit. If, if I felt better, I would have been Happy New Year. But instead, oh, it's Happy the New emphasis. Year. Yeah. It's, it's where the emphasis is on the syllable is what yes, we're talking about. there you go. Well, we are happy that you are here. And I, I don't know, I, maybe I'm speaking for Nick here. I, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Uh, there's some rough stuff brewing. Of course, 2022 is going to see us covering the uh, midterm elections coming up. Uh, oh, I just ruined next year. I just already ruined yeah. it. It's it's only early January, I already ruined it, but we're gonna be covering that. Uh, and uh, today we have a really special guest. We have Will Bunch, who is an opinion writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer, the author of Resent You, How College Broke the American Dream and Divided the Nation and How to Fix It. Uh, we have a really good conversation, but before we get to that, uh, we gotta we gotta talk about a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, headline, headline, Marjorie Taylor Greene thrown off of Twitter, which I think is pretty much meaningless, but we have to talk about it regardless. She, she only had five strikes, Jared. <laughs> she now claims she only had three. <laughs> yeah, two of them were a mistake or something, right? Yeah. Um, right. Even still. I don't know. I, I, three is fine with me. That's a good number. I agree. And I, I want to point out in real Marjorie Taylor Greene fashion, I love at the beginning, it was like, I don't care. I don't care. I, but this is great that I got thrown off. And then like two seconds later, it's like, but I only had three strikes. So you should bring me back because I don't care, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the, the, I, I, I think concentrated Marjorie Taylor Greene because she is absolutely, after all, a complete and utter grifter and troll. That's who she is. But she, she does it on purpose. She She's martyring herself to have this. Again, don't forget, Marjorie Taylor Greene ha can't go more than two weeks without being in the news. And yep. it had been about 12 days. Or Actually, it's not quite true because she had the whammy. We'll talk about it in a second. But uh, you know what I mean? Maybe, you know what? Because she went more than 14 days without being in the news, she had to give us a double whammy. So this was the other one. But I would argue that she's probably did it on purpose knowing that they were going to do this and then she could have another cause to, to sort of cry about uh, and we don't need to even talk about First Amendment right because that's what they're going to be yelling all the time everyone on this podcast understands why it's not pertinent in this situation right right and and listen the the whole thing is this is absolutely in her best interest this is who she is the entire point of the Republican Party at this point is Pure aggrievement, which we're going to get into a little bit with Will Bunch here in a minute. But the entire point is they have to say, look at how I'm being treated. Look at what the powerful people are doing. And by the way, they're not wrong. It is weird that big tech has this type of power. It is weird that basically they are able to control this on a whim, right? Listen, I was as glad as anybody that Donald Trump got removed from Twitter, you know, as his presidency was almost over after they had profited off of him and gained users and a lot of influence using him and juicing him like a product. But I also thought that it was weirdly dystopian that corporations just could get together and say the president of the United States no longer has a platform here. That is weird. Like you can say that's a victory, but you can also kind of side eye it and say, my God, this whole thing is pretty disturbing. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, it was still brave of them to do it, either, even still, right? Because, again, it's any kind of future profits they, they're not getting for however long the guy lives. Um, so that is isn't that is not another part of it. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, the bottom line here is it's a private Wait, thing hold you, on. Time yeah. out. Do you think if he runs for president in 2024, you think that there's oh. not a possibility that they'll re reinstate him for that? Mm. Maybe. They might say, hey, we'll give you another chance. But then again, he gets... He gets the POTUS uh, Twitter account. So don't forget that. And so does Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has her own I official account. World. It's still there. She still has a platform if she wants it to use her official, you know, uh, and whatever her the name is for, for you know, the Congress person of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, you know, let's not forget, like, they're, they're not silenced here. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. No, and, and let's get to the, the big actual story after we, we have that um, that appetizer, if you will. And that is, of course, that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is absolutely desperate for attention and is absolutely a grifter, but knows that she can get the most attention by pushing things like fascism, authoritarianism. Uh, and, and I got to say, one of my favorite things in the world, Nick, is when you DM me or when you'll text me something, because it's a little bit of a grab bag. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's maybe it's good. Most of the time, it's really bad. And in this case, uh, you, you served me up a, a beautiful, beautiful steak of bullshit, which was that Marjorie Taylor Greene is now running around talking about a national divorce. And for those keeping track at home, a national divorce is literally a civil war type situation. And that is what she is now pushing for fundraising, for attention, for power. And, and, and that's where we are. That's what we're doing now for, for attention and clicks and retweets and likes, apparently. Yeah. And th that was in late December, and I feel like she used the words divorce so she wouldn't get banned from Twitter <laughs> at that moment. Uh, and she chose those words carefully because there is no other there is no other way to describe what she wants other than to have some sort of secession from, you know, one part of the country and the other. And, um, you know, I, we talked about this before. I had I, I gotten to the point at some point in the past, you know, in 2021 where I was like, fine. Give them their own part. Get the people out who don't want to be in whatever part of the country they want. Let's have them. Maybe it'll be Mississippi, that whole area. They can have the we South We can't again. get people masks. We can't get people masks. How are we going to move millions <laughs> of people from one place to another? It'll be we the can... Underground Railroad. I don't know. Something. Oh, my God. God, Soros will do it, Jared. He'll he'll. Oh yeah, video. the patron saint of the Muckrake podcast, yes. George Soros. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, I don't know, but listen, uh, it's awful. It's horrible. It's undemocratic. It's against everything we've talked about for the Constitution, and yet, in the name of like the Constitution, she's arguing for all this crap. Uh, please tell me you're there. You're local. Please tell me she's going to get primaried or 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 a lot lose on the general. Uh, no, no chance. No uh, chance? There's oh. more. There's more of an opportunity of her running for president. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. Wonder yeah. what her polling numbers are. Um, here's the thing: as somebody who uh, watched Donald Trump climb his way up to the nomination, as everybody said that there was no possible way of him winning, I do not want to sit here and tell you that there's no possible way. Stop ruining my 2022. Jimmy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just. I'm being honest. Oh, you're piling on now.
That's awful. That's an awful primary, by the way. Well, like what? whatever happens by 2024, the, the Republican primary in 2024 is going to be Mad Max Thunderdome on like PCP right. like and bath salts. Well, because they're, be- they're, they're doing it. They don't want to they don't want to beat Trump necessarily. Trump wins. They don't want to position themselves for 2028 and beyond. And, you know, but we, we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene as president in this movie, Don't Look Up, which maybe we'll talk about on Thursday. Um, right. We kind of got a taste of what that might be like. So uh, I'll, I'll pass. <laughs> no, thank you. I'll, I'll pass as well. And and before we get to Will, we also have to talk about the fact uh, that that good old former president Donald Trump um, is using what platform he has remaining to endorse Viktor Orban. And uh, th- this is the statement. And then we need to unpack who Orban is. Of course, we've talked about the fact that Tucker Carlson uh, went to Hungary. Uh, the entire Republican Party is playing footsie under the table with Hungary. Trump said in a statement, Viktor Orban of Hungary truly loves his country. By the way, Nick, I, I, I missed his random capitalization in statements. And wants safety for his people. He has done, powerful and, <laughs> he's done a powerful and wonderful job in protecting Hungary, stopping illegal immigration, creating jobs, trade, and should be allowed to continue to do so in the upcoming election. He is a strong leader and respected by all. He has my complete support and endorsement for re-election as prime minister of Italy. I mean, Hungary. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. It, it, it's weird how you can just suddenly start thinking about people like Benito Mussolini. It's, it's very strange. Oh, I know. I know. It, or, yes. Um, yes. Orban. Yeah. Is, is our your, your, your favorite, you know, you're in my favorite person these days when we talk. Our, our, our favorite uh, autocrat. Yeah. Well, you know, he's playing into this notion that people want a strong leader that's going to take care of them. And don't worry about the other stuff. Well, I'll just make sure that you can, you know, you'll, you'll be home for time or for dinner with your with your kids or whatever. Just don't say anything out loud about any dissidents or anything like that. <laughs> Are you yeah. saying, Nick, that he's going to make the trains run on time? Yeah. I, basically, he's going to make the trains run on time and maybe keep the streets clean. Right. Like all this. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the things that Orban has done against the, his own media uh, to oh. shut it down and then also immigration. Those are the, the that tells you all you need to know. And those are facts that he will actually acknowledge. That's what's so scary about it. He's not hiding it. He makes no. it completely clear what he's doing. That, that that's his entire platform. And, and, you know, when you think that, like, you can't be more blatant about this stuff. Orban is the most blatant autocrat authoritarian that there is. He even coined the term illiberal democracy. He said, we're done with liberal democracy. All of this voting, all of these rights, they get in the way. And here's the linchpin, and here's why the Republicans love him so much, is he says, I'm doing it to protect Western civilization. If we don't, there's going to be a bunch of immigrants streaming over the border, and a nation has to have borders, and we have to protect Western civilization. He has laid a blueprint for what Republicans want to do in the United States of America. And if you listen to them, if you actually read their articles, you listen to their podcasts, you actually pay attention to their research, that's what they want. They say it in so many words. They want an urbanized America. And that's that's exactly what's happening here. You have all of these authoritarians around the world who are starting to coalesce. You've got Putin, you've got Trump, you've got Orban, uh, Netanyahu there for a hot minute, right? You have a lot of these people oh. with these authoritarian tendencies who are helping one another and standing up for one another. Wait, we, we, we forgot the headliner, North Korea. And, and oh, I forgot, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot Trump's best friend. Right. Yes. And, and, and by the way, when you go back and reread the coverage of those moments when the summit he had, you have to, you, people forget 
like Trump had said, I'm buddies with oh. this guy now. He, they're not doing nuclear weapons anymore. Trust me. He tells me oh. he's not. they're not. And then what does it turn out? They literally, the intelligence community has to leak this data that they know he's gotten farther along than they ever had before because Trump let him do it. So why is Trump lying? Trump knows this. Why does Trump lie in, in, to benefit Putin? Again, a lot of it has to do with the fact that he wants to be those people. But it also deals with the sort of collusion that we talked about before with Russia and the United States and the, and the elections that uh, there's no other explanation for that kind of stuff. No. And, and you know, to, to borrow a term from from your world, game recognizes game. Yeah. I mean, these yeah. people know who they are. They understand. And this is something we talk about all the time. We are at a moment of crisis. We're at a moment where liberal democracy is being tested, where capitalism and neoliberalism is starting to fray. Something else has to come along. The question is, is it going to be what these assholes are putting together? And by the way, Nick, for the book right now, I'm in the Trump presidency. I'm back in like 2017. Holy shit, is that a crazy time? I, you know what I mean? Like you almost, it's it's like trauma. You almost push it out and don't think about what all it was. My God, was it awful. But what we're seeing is they are pushing something, which is illiberal democracy, which is authoritarianism, right? Make the, make the trains run on time. Make the people go do their work. Make people shut up and prefer one group over another. Hint, by the way, it's evangelical white men. But on the other side, they, we have to come up with something new. We have to have an alternative because I have to tell you that these guys, these guys are getting together on this shit. Like they are, they are comparing notes. They are helping one another. They are being each other's despotic wingmans. That's where we are. Wingman, wingmen, not wingmans. Wingmen. Right. Bullshit. You could be my wingman. Um, but you no, know, listen. We have to get into those communities. I almost feel like you know the the movie version is is that a bunch of these liberal pinko commie bastards descend upon these neighborhoods where there are a lot of right-wing people who would otherwise hate them and somehow they have the meet cute and then next thing you know like they're like oh i get it like you really are just normal people who all want to get along and next thing they're like having the, the three-legged race down the street you know with, with each other like that's what it needs to happen something tells me i'm into something <laughs> yeah exactly communist right you know, oh, those guys aren't so bad. Like, I can't believe that. You know, even if it's on a very, you know, uh, myopic level of like, it's it's somebody who's very close to their neighborhood or something, it, it might thaw some of that out. Like, that's, that's all I could come up with because, you know, otherwise it turns into, you know, it, uh, it, violence. It does. And, and as you become more alienated, you become more frustrated. You start to em embrace those things. They have answers. The answers are wrong, right. they're disgusting, and they're terrifying, but they have answers. And answers to a lot of people are a lot better, and particularly when the answers are like, hey, we're going to give you priority and we're going to take care of the people that you don't like, namely people of color, gay people, vulnerable communities, women, right, Muslims. We'll make sure that we take care of them. Just uh, don't ask what's happening over here. You know, don't, yeah. don't, 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 don't look too close to see what's happening over here. Right. That, th that's an answer that some people are willing to hear. The problem is when the response is, yeah, I know things are hard. Maybe we can means test a couple of things. Maybe we'll be able to reach across the aisle with this group that just completely lost their ever-loving minds and figure out some sort of a bipartisan thing. There has to be a reply because these people, they have their answers. They're disgusting. They're wrong. They're terrifying. They're dangerous. But they have, quote unquote, 
answers. Yeah, and one, one way, it, which is clear to me, is education. And, and we need to be able to figure out, because it does go down with such clear lines of like college educated versus non-college non educated people, you know, it's a very, that's a big, that's one of the bigger Venn diagram circles, you know, where they don't intersect at all. And so if we can't get that started and that, that improved, then I worry that we'll never get that started. And by the way, it feels like it's done on purpose, right? We've, we've created Absolutely. a situation to have this, or I'm sorry, they've created, they've created the environment of education the way it is now. And the byproduct, the natural byproduct of that is, is the political situation we're in. Yeah, and we're going to talk to Will Bunch about that right now, and we'll be back to talk about it some more. Hang out for a second. Here's Will Bunch. All right, everybody. Uh, we have a really special treat today. Uh, one of my favorite writers out there today who is uh, absolutely killing it with the articles, bringing up necessary stuff, uh, talking about the dangers that we are facing. Uh, they, we're going to go ahead and start with this article from Will Bunch. Uh, who is an opinion writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and also the author of Resent You, How College Broke the American Dream and Divided the Nation and How to Fix It, which I, for one, can't wait to read. Uh, Will Bunch, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jared. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, guys. I, I really appreciate it. So uh, Nick and I were just talking about this before uh, Will was able to come on, and we are so excited to get into this first article, which I think – is bringing up a problem that people don't really want to touch, they don't really want to deal with, they don't really want to actually consider. Uh, and and I, th I thought that Will did a great job uh, in the Inquirer linking January 6th as a moment, as, as, as this, you know, attempted coup insurrection and linking it to the problems with our educational system, our lack of understanding of civics, uh, the way that we have sort of segregated the population in terms of who deserves an education, what type of an education they're supposed to have. I think this gets down to the actual marrow of the bigger problems that we have to start dealing with. But Will, can you start us off and, and talk about where this article came from, what it was that, that inspired it, and uh, what, what, what your feelings were as you, as you put this together? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great question and a great, great introduction. Um, so, uh, well, it's interesting, you know, like most, uh, like most column writers in America, you, you know, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't and probably shouldn't let the uh, anniversary of January 6th pass without commenting on the one year anniversary. And in fact, you know, my editors at the Inquirer said, hey, you know, the Sunday before January 6th, which was yesterday, uh, January 2nd, we're going to do a special issue in our uh, current opinion section about about January 6th. And I go, well, if I, if I have something to say about January 6th, you know, and I believe me, I've been writing a lot about January 6th for the last 12 months. So uh, I wasn't exactly sure what tack I would take, though. And then uh, inspiration came from the strangest place because, uh, well, two things. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was totally a lightning bolt. I mean, I've been thinking a lot over the last year uh, about um, education and particularly the lack of civics education, uh, uh, just the lack of general education, you know, reasoning, uh, you know, science, uh, uh, not just with January 6th, but also uh, with what we're seeing with, you know, vaccine refusal and vaccine denial, you know, what, what we've been seeing for the last decade or two on, on climate change and some other key issues. So so this has been on my mind. It's, it's It certainly was on my mind a lot as I wrote this book about the state of American college and, and how it affected our politics. So I've been thinking a lot about these things. And then 
uh, it just coincidentally last week as I was trying to hone in on what I was going to write about January 6th, I happened to see this uh, story in, in my paper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, that went viral about this really interesting case. We, um, the, the Pennsylvania education, uh, the Pennsylvania Constitution has some language about education in there that, uh, you know, that says basically uh, support for education should be equal for all kids and across all districts. And I, I forget the exact wording in the Constitution, but uh, and it, it's clear that that's been obliterated over the last few decades. You know, um, uh, you know, suburban districts under the current system are much more heavily supported than uh, uh, either urban districts with high poverty rates or, or, or rural districts, uh, which also have high poverty, higher poverty rates. And um, so somebody finally, uh, the, you know, Education Law Center and these education legal groups and a bunch of districts finally got together and uh, filed a massive lawsuit about unequal education funding in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, it's currently it's currently in the statewide Commonwealth Court. Uh, it's being argued. And, you know, it's one of those court cases. It, it goes on for weeks and someone's got to sit there through a lot of dull moments. But occasionally there'll be a moment that just shines a light on everything. And uh, a week or two ago, there was such a moment when um, the superintendent for a very small school, rural school district, the Otto Eldred School District in um, in McKean County, Pennsylvania, which is a very rural, mountainy uh, county uh, on the border of North Central Pennsylvania uh, with New York State, uh, only a population of 40,000 people in the whole county. Um, and uh, this guy was testifying about lack of state support for schools and what it's meant for how they've had to cut back on subjects like biology and algebra. And, and, you know, he says it's been reflected in students' test scores in these subjects, which have dropped over the years uh, as state support has declined. Now, he's being, he's being grilled in this lawsuit by a lawyer for the state legislature, which is uh, controlled by Republicans and has basically engineered this steady decline in the state level of funding over the years. And, uh, this guy named named John Krill, a wonderful name, right? Uh, so so Krill, who's this? Uh, it fits uh, the guy. I'll fits, just say right, that. Absolutely, uh, a, a bottom feeder, right? So uh, so this guy Krill, who's a uh, Harvard Law educated, you know, corporate lawyer uh, in Pennsylvania, is <clears throat> um, is defending defending the legislation. He starts grilling the superintendent, and he says, um, you know, if if somebody if somebody is going to be a carpenter, do they really need to know biology? You know, he asks, and uh, you know, which inspired some back and forth. And the superintendent obviously tried to explain why yes, he does. And you know, I mean, to me that question is so ironic right now because you know you look at the denial of science that's taking place out there in this life or death matter of whether people are getting vaccines. And you know, as soon as I read that, I immediately did some googling to see if I could find out if uh, McKean County, Pennsylvania has a low vaccination rate, and uh, uh, much to my utter non-surprise, uh, it has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the, in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, it, it, but this exchange continued, and um, uh, uh, this lawyer Krill also asked, you know, does a kid does a kid really need to be taking Algebra One if he's on the McDonald's track, you know, and and it's just one of those moments, you know, you're like stunned to hear the quiet part 
said out loud because, you know, for years we've been saying that in our education system that we put certain kinds of kids, whether they're from, you know, poor, you know, predominantly black and brown neighborhoods in the city or whether they're from, you know, remote rural districts where uh, the rate of college attendance is very low, that, you know, kids are just put on these certain tracks way too early in their career that, you know, you're just going to be a factory worker or nowadays you don't have factories. So I guess you're going to be a warehouse worker um, or you're going to be a fast food worker. And as a result, uh, you know, you don't really need to learn all these highfalutin things uh, uh, like algebra or biology. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's long been argued that that's what we're doing to our kids. But to hear, to hear this guy Krill say it out loud was kind of shocking. And to me, it just summed up the lack of investment in education that plays right in, in into January 6th. And, you know, I mean, I mean, the bigger picture, and I didn't even, I mean, it's such a big picture, I didn't even really get too deep into this, into my column that I finally wrote, but uh, it's kind of the subject of my book, which deals more with higher education. But, you know, obviously, um, this attitude of telling kids that they're on the McDonald's track, you know, that they're going to be a carpenter, that you don't need to know stuff, and then they grow up, and then um, uh, they come to resent people who tell them what to do. You know, look at, uh, actually, I read a really good column this week about all the resentment that's tar target targets Dr. Fauci, you know, and Dr. Fauci should be this beloved figure at this point. I mean, he's not always right about everything, but, you know, he's this public health guru who's guided us through several crises, and yet he's just the subject of scorn and contempt on the right. And it's, it's really kind of a reflect, uh, reflects a um, resentment and scorn, you know, for learning, for knowledge. And, and, you know, I think this comes from not giving people opportunities and writing them off. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the politics of resentment is the politics that created Donald Trump. And uh, the politics of resentment, you know, so greatly fueled the people who were there on January 6th. You know, they weren't all they weren't all people from McDonald's track, but they all did share this sense that uh, elite educated people looked down on them, you know, that that they were denied opportunities. And um, uh, so that's part of the problem. And also part of the problem, frankly, is what they were denied by getting a lousy education. You know, um, uh, even though the back and forth in this court case dealt more with science subjects and, and math, you know, algebra and, and biology, but I think unspoken was how America in the last 30 to 40 years has totally abandoned, abandoned education in the civics because, you know, <clears throat> uh, civics isn't something that boosts your math or reading scores on these tests that these kids are drilled in. So schools suddenly found they didn't have time for civics and you know now now we see this world of misinformation about government and how the government operates and and uh um you know if you don't if you don't understand civic if you don't understand how a civil society works uh it's obviously just going to make you so much more susceptible to the big lie which is what we've been dealing with uh, you know, in the months before January 6th and in the year since January 6th, uh, just the ever-growing number of people in one political party who are willing to believe this completely unsubstantiated falsehood that um, Joe Biden became president through election fraud. And, um, uh, 
you know, um, so uh, that just I think it just speaks to um, a lack. Just it's not just a lack of knowing the facts about you know how a bill becomes a law. Although I guess that would certainly be helpful, but it's just a, just a lack of respect for the whole process of learning. Right? You know of uh, of inquiry, of, uh, of, you know, rational thinking, uh, of how, how do we solve a problem? You know, I mean, the reason, the reason that a carpenter benefits from biology isn't necessarily because he needs to know genetics in order to hammer drywall on the building, but he does need to understand the process of science, you know, how we, how we discover things. And so, you know, when things that are going to be important to him in his life, like whether he should get vaccinated or whether he should wear a mask, you know, so he can appreciate how those decisions were made and, 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 the, and the kind of knowledge that goes into those decisions uh, and, and have some respect for them. But, uh, you know, if we just if we just see education from the sixth grade on as just kind of putting people on career tracks and training them for either a career in Silicon Valley, if they're one of the privileged or a career in McDonald's, if they're one of the not privileged, uh, uh, we're going to keep having these problems. Well, you know, I was actually a high school teacher for several years in the late 90s and early 2000s. And for what it's worth, we were forbidden from telling anybody, you know, you're going to work at McDonald's if you don't work harder as a student. Like that was a thing where I think it must have been forbidden because teachers used to say it, right? Like in the 80s or whatever. And it got to that point where they actually had to explicitly say that, which I thought was fascinating because I think I was probably tempted to say that too you know coming out of that era um, and and we used to joke around it at lunch and it's a not even a joke that like if aliens were to come down and observe what we were doing in this you know inner big inner city school they would say oh you're trying to create people that will have to do all these menial jobs right that is the goal of what you're doing here and we knew because of the lack of support and the lack of you know, organization across the board that like they were not getting the best education. My question, though, is you've been around enough long enough to remember your friend and ours, Ronald Reagan, and we well, always bring him up. We always talk about this. But I, I sense that I wonder what your take on it, this is, is when he uttered the nine most terrifying words in the English language, which were I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I wonder if that was the beginning of this, where they the attitude shifted so severely against what government could mean and could help in terms of curriculum in terms of standards and goals that that led to sort of the you know the destruction of the curriculum that we have now and lack of civics yeah i mean i mean you basically just you know teed up kind of the setup of my whole book and 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 ronald reagan is very present throughout the book i mean he's if anybody is is kind of the villain of my book present you that comes out in august uh, it's probably Ronald Reagan, who I, by the way, also wrote an entire different book about Ronald Reagan called Tear Down This Myth that, that looked at how conservatives have uh, created and misused Reagan's legacy for their own modern purposes and, and also looked at Reagan's actual track record versus the, the myths that have been created around him. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, Nick, there was so much there was so much in your question. Uh, I mean, two two things I would say about kind of Reaganism and how it, how it fits into all this, which is one is, you know, even even before Reagan said the line about I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. I mean, he, his his start in elective politics, of course, was when he ran for governor of California in 1966. And um, if you're a student of history, you'll know that this was in the immediate aftermath of 
really the first high-profile student protest of that era, which was the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, um, you know, in which students basically won a victory in their ability to speak about political issues uh, on, the, on the campus property at the, at the University of California at Berkeley. And uh, um, uh, I mean, Reagan based his campaign basically on fighting against the the rat. I mean, there were two, uh, that that and also the Watts riots. So it was, it was his campaign was part part anti welfare, which also obviously feeds into an anti government mode, but also uh, very much about public education. And, and it, it kind of fit this whole zeitgeist that um, we're giving these kids. You know, t at the time, tuition in California public universities was free. There was no tuition, um, uh, just very small, tiny fees. And that was it. And, um, you know, so the attitude, especially among people from Reagan's generation, I mean, Reagan had obviously gone to college, but all the people from his generation who had not gone to college, which was a majority of voters at that time, resenting these young kids who had this amazing opportunity that they had, hadn't had to go to college and educate themselves. And now they now they're rebelling against the system, you know, and this is the whole debate about what what is college and what is higher education or what is education really for in terms of uh, you know if if you if you want liberal education and you want people to become free thinkers and people to uh, develop rational thought and to uh, develop skills of, of, of inquiry and asking questions about things well they're they're gonna ask questions and uh, you know, as it turned out, you know, I mean, after, right after World War II, when you saw the big explosion in college attendance, which came about because of the GI Bill and then uh, played right into the baby boom that came right after that, uh, and it was an era of low tuition and college attendance skyrocketed, and uh, so did liberal education. You had more people suddenly majoring in subjects like philosophy, sociology. Uh, which had not been popular before. And um, these students asked questions. So they protested civil rights, then they protested the Vietnam War when that came around, and this led to an incredible backlash. And when Reagan became governor, I mean, he said famously, I mean, he, he actually, surprisingly, he never successfully imposed tuition. That ended up being his successors, but he pushed for it for his entire time in office. Uh, and they did raise fees a lot on students. And his famous line was, the taxpayer shouldn't be, shouldn't be subsidizing intellectual curiosity. And this, that, that one sentence, yeah, I think even more than the whole, I'm from the government and, and here to help you. I mean, I think the whole thing about not subsidizing intellectual curiosity summed up the Republican attitude towards education. And like you said, I mean, it gets into this whole idea of basically training young people to be workers in a capitalist society, you know? Uh, it's like, how do we create an education system that gives them enough skill where they can work in a factory or work in a McDonald's or work, uh, you know, or work in a, you know, Dilbert style cubicle farm office setting, uh, I guess, but but not so much, not so much free thinking that they're gonna constantly question authority and they're not gonna, you know, support things like socialism and they're not gonna, rebel against the system. And, and I think this has been the formula that Republicans uh, have been trying have been trying to keep in place. And, um, uh, you know, so again, getting back to the moment in this in this court case, that's the, the whole thing about the McDonald's track. I mean, 
like you said, Nick, I mean, it's not a new concept, obviously, and particularly, you know, you mentioned inner city schools, and I mean, this has been the, you know, totally valid complaint of, um, you know, black and brown activists for, for generations, that their kids are written off from the moment they arrive in school, you know, that they're, uh, that they're given, that they're penalized by low expectations. And, um, you know, if, if anything, if anything, it's, it's, it's like that attitude has spread and is, is to more places and, and to more kids as, you know, as we've gone on and, uh, you know, just, just a privileged few in this knowledge economy seem, seem to be breaking out and really flourishing in the system. And, um, you know, like I said, the people who held back uh, are, are resentful. Um, uh, uh, it, it creates a culture where um, they're not going to glorify knowledge. They're going to scorn it, you know. And, you know, it, it's it's not good and, and you can mock it, but it's it's almost understandable in a way that people would, would you know, if people are told that they're going to be dumb their whole lives and, and they're not given opportunities to break out of that mode, uh, yeah, they're going to be, they're going to be resentful. Of course they are. Well, and I want to point out as, as the, the college professor on this call, that none of this was on accident. This wasn't a mistake in any way, shape or form. I always try and explain to people because obviously, because I am a liberal arts professor, obviously I have a beautiful wood paneled office where I, you know, sift bourbon, you know, in between classes. And leather patches on your nose. I have some patches, but they're few and far between. And what, and I'm glad you brought this up, uh, Will, because before the 60s and the 70s, before you have this backlash, before you have this free speech movement, the anti-war movement, I'll tell you who was really fond of investing in colleges and professors, and that was Republicans, and that was the federal government, because that's where we got our war weapons from. That's where we got our technology. In fact, social sciences ballooned up because they were being used as weapons of war. That completely changed in the 1960s and 70s when all of a sudden they pushed back against that. They started questioning the orthodox of the military industrial complex and so what happens is in to go along with what you're talking about they start divesting from these universities all of a sudden not everybody is going to go to school the prices start going up the information economy obviously takes over and then you're going to have the people who get ahead and the people who don't and this wasn't accidental people like the Koch brothers people people investing millions and billions in all of this are very interested in privatizing this entire system they're very interested in making money hand over fist and all of this and bringing the entire system down. And the side effect of all of that, as you keep bringing up, I think, uh, pertinently, is resentment. There are people who cannot afford to go and get that education. It doesn't mean that they're dumb. It doesn't mean that they're it doesn't mean that they're stupid. It just so happens that they don't have the opportunities to go do it. And they are ripe for demagogues to say, I know you're angry. I know you're pissed off. I'll tell you who to be angry and pissed off at, which, of course, is where we get Donald Trump and any number of uh, demagogues at this point. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, people it's funny because people on the left are always asking, you know, I, I don't understand these conservatives and especially these like rural conservatives. You know, why aren't they angry at the CEOs of the um, corporations that outsource their jobs to China or outsource their jobs to Mexico or just shut down their factories? You know, why is it that they hate? You know, college professors like you, Jared, and why do they why do they hate journalists like me, and why do they hate Hollywood movie stars? You know, it, it just seems, you know, the people on the left, it, it can seem strange, like who these people 
resent and and uh, you know you know I you know uh, I covered the Trump campaign in 2016 to some extent and went to a couple rallies either on the outside or or once on the inside and I, I always I, I really didn't care much about what Trump had to say but I was always kind of there to talk to the people in the crowd and kind of understand their motivations and why they were there and um, I, I actually went to uh, it's kind of a weird forgotten thing but uh, it was actually this time of year. Uh, uh, five years ago, uh, uh, after Trump was elected and he was the president-elect, but he still wanted to keep having rallies because he loved them so much. So I actually went to a rally in Harrisburg, or, or Hershey, near Harrisburg, uh, between between his election and, and his, him taking office. And uh, the only thing that people in the crowd want to talk, you know, people said, oh, it's economic resentment. But, you know, nobody really had anything that was a beef about jobs or the economy. Uh, the thing they wanted to talk about was how much they hated CNN. I mean, the one thing that got the crowd really fired up was, you know, chanting CNN sucks and uh, any, anything against the media. And um, again, I mean, you have to, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've been covering, I've been covering politics ever since, you know, the first, <laughs> the first presidential election I covered was 18, it was, yeah, 18, seems like, <laughs> uh, was 1984, it feels like 1884, but, uh, you know, 1984, the first, first candidate I covered was uh, Jesse Jackson campaigning on, on Super Tuesday in the Deep South, so I've been, I've been doing this for a while, and, um, um, but, but I get disappointed in, in kind of the way that we cover our politics, because, I mean, we, we all know that there's angry, resentful voters out there, but, it, it seems like the political reporters don't don't want to do the work of, of taking it all the way back to the root. And to me, the root is is very much in, in education, you know, um, in who gets opportunities for education and who doesn't, you know. And like you said, I mean, when this decision was made after the 60s and 70s, you know, and you're right, government did. I mean, also, one thing you didn't mention, there was also uh, much more government interest in funding K through 12 uh, math and science education in those years because of the space race, you know, the whole 1958, the whole post Sputnik, um, uh, you know, a major education. Eisenhower says we have to meet the challenge of the new, the new era. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden the federal government found money to uh, funnel to, to schools, you know, and, and, and like you said, I mean, uh, uh, college, colleges like Michigan state, for example, back in, in the sixties, was just insane the amount of money they got from the federal government for uh, some of it was for basic science, some of it was for applied research, but it was all, you know, geared towards, uh, you know, winning, winning the uh, Cold War basically. And when and when that when that bottom dropped out, uh, money wise, and then also when you had the conservative backlash against free thinking liberal education at the same time, um, you know, I mean that that teed up the whole privatization of higher education. And, it, and it's interesting because I think, I think there have actually been kind of two effects of that. One is uh, the resentment it created among people who were shut out of college access all of a sudden, and what, what we've been talking about uh, here. Uh, the other thing, of course, is uh, you know the millions of people who said, well, all right, I still have to have a college education because that's the, that's the only credential that you really can use to make a middle class living in this society anymore. So I will do, I will do whatever it takes to get that college degree. And they were told, okay, well, what it takes is you need to take out this loan. 
and um, it's a fair deal because by taking this loan out, uh, you know, you're going to get a degree and that degree is going to give you what you need to make so much money that you will pay this loan back. And this has been so problematic in so many ways. You know, I mean, so many people, well, I mean, people didn't finish and get their degrees in some cases, but even those who did get their degrees in many cases found that they were not getting jobs uh, at a rate that to pay these loans back. Um, and again, <clears throat> again, it, you know, it, it kind of cuts this whole broader issue of, of capitalism and social control, right? I mean, how much, how much freedom do you have to rebel against the prevailing uh, social order if you owe a hundred thousand dollars, you know, uh, you know, and then, and then if you lose your job, you're not going to be able to pay back your debts, you know, and, uh, 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 so it's a very, it's a very convenient system for the establishment, and um, you know, and I think when you look at politics on the left side of the dial, particularly um, for voters under age forty or under age thirty-five, certainly, um, I, I really think, <coughs> um, you know, there there have been several drivers, but I think, I think the college loan crisis has been a huge driver. You know, uh, again, I, I mean, I also. Uh, I, I also spent a lot of time covering Bernie Sanders' campaign, also in 20, 2015, 2016. I, I even wrote a, a short ebook about Bernie's rise, in which I, again, I went to a lot of his rallies, talked to a lot of the people, and so many people again and again talked about the college, you know, college debt. You know, that their kid was still living in the basement, or they wanted to go to college but they couldn't because they were so afraid they wouldn't be able to pay back their loans and. Um, so, so really, this whole I really, if you look at it, I mean, the privatization of college has shaped the modern right and the modern left, which is interesting. You know, it's interesting to me because we hear about the anger. So, you know, the rhetorical questions are: Are these people angry? And yes, they are. Who are they angry at? And I know you mentioned, you know, CNN or the media, and they mentioned, you know, liberal liberal professors, which Jared constantly is pointing out how how few liberal. I mean, some of people these are very angry at me. Yeah. I, I listen. I know it. It's all right. <laughs> but but we. I mean, I don't know how many times every week we have to hear about these professors who are so ultra right wing that it's like like how is it possible that you could claim in a blanket that there's all these liberal professors because there's so many on the other side. But here's the thing: if they really are that mad, and they feel like they weren't given what they were promised in the propaganda that is the United States, you know, system, they're mad at the at the politicians in some respects. They're certainly mad at the Democrats. But the solution in my mind would be that they'd want the government to do more for them to help them get what they were promised or what they think that they were promised. But how is that not socialism then, right? Isn't this a dichotomy that we're dealing with? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, <laughs> I think, I, I mean, if it starts, I think to some degree, in, in my book I talk about basically I feel like the whole college crisis has kind of divided America into into four groups, not two in a sense, because I, I kind of compare it to a pizza cutter. You know, you slice the pie one way between left and right, but then you turn it 90 degrees and you slice it another way uh, between young and old. And I mean, I mean, the driving force in the in the conservative movement is I think older people and in and, and, and in these blue collar or these rural communities. These were older people who 
feel like the social contract was changed on them because they came of age at a time where you were told, you know, correctly for most people that you didn't have to have a college degree to, to live a middle class lifestyle. Um, you know, in these towns that had like a thriving factory, it was kind of assumed that you would go into that and people were okay. You know, a lot of people were okay with that. It's like, you know, um, uh, I'm going to make enough money to uh, get a get a, a powerboat and I can go up to the lake on weekends or I'm going to buy a cottage where I can go hunting up in the up in the mountains or, you know, that you could do that on a on a factory lifestyle back in the in the 70s or the 80s or even up to the 90s, I guess, to some degree. And, you know, that social contract was changed on them. You know, these people, <coughs> excuse me, these people have lost their jobs. Um, they have a lot of free time on their hands and they use that free time to listen to talk radio or watch Fox News and um, they get radicalized. So this, I mean, this group is, is kind of the driving force, you know, among among younger people who've been, who've been shut out, you know, from the, from the system because of the lack of access to higher education. What you're seeing a lot of is this rising rate of deaths of despair, right? You're seeing this increase in, uh, you know, opioid or drug addiction and overdose deaths. You're seeing this sharp increase uh, in suicides among groups that didn't previously have high suicide rates, you know, white, white working class, middle-aged people, which is now unfortunately spread to young people. Um, in, in the book, I, I have, I, in my book, I have a few vignettes to kind of explain these different types of people you find in America these days. And for, for that generation, I actually, rather than, rather than talking to the young people, I talked to the mother of two, uh, two kids in their mid twenties. One of them, one of them committed suicide and one of them died of a drug overdose Two two of her five sons, um, um, you know, and, and a nice family, but, um, from a, a very uh, industrial union factory where people didn't have college ambitions and they hit their 20s and, and they ended up being more adrift than they expected to be. And, um, and and this is pretty common. So I think I think that's how it plays out to some degree among these younger people who who get locked out of the system, you know. And a lot a lot of them are not politically radicalized yet, but I think they're they will be over time. I think if, if uh, you know, without without a sense of direction or purpose. I think there's another interesting aspect of this, too, because I think on one hand, and, and just to take January 6th, which I, I think you were very smart in your article to go ahead and base that around there and make that sort of the, the core of it. Like at January 6th, you have people who are very pissed off because they're not part of the so-called new economy, right? You've got extremists there, but you've also got this weird group uh, what you've got small business owners, you've got entrepreneurs, you've got people, and you, you mentioned the powerboat that you take out on the lake. They've got the powerboat that they take out on the lake. Matter of fact, some of them even have a powerboat dealership, right? And there's a weird thing that happens there, which it, it, it's this phenomenon. It's small business owners who feel like they should have bigger businesses. They feel like they should have more money. But also there's the aggrievement that I think that Trump has, which is how dare you look down on us? How dare you experts think you're better than us? How dare you think your culture is better than us? And a lot of it, I, I will, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. A lot of it 
is sort of their consumer identity of being like sort of a, 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 an obnoxious kind of trollish activity that says um, it makes me think, Nick, I, you might appreciate this. It's the um, what was it from Revenge of the Nerds? It's like the slobs versus what? what's that idea? Oh, I don't even remember now. I just never. It's like the, the jocks. or the slobs well, versus the the the. You know what I'm talking about? It's like there's some sort of a weird thing happening there that makes them dislike experts and educated people and a certain bourgeois liberal society. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I mean, these people have been successful financially. You know, they're doing they're doing well. They have they have the big boat, uh, but they feel that society isn't giving them the respect they deserve because because they don't have the things that the things the liberals respect i guess or or whatever <coughs> excuse me so in the in the book i um although my, my editor cut it down a bit unfortunately but I, I i had a whole riff in the book about the trump boat boat parades of the 2020 campaign which is exactly what you were said and there was a great there was a great article in the washington post and um I'm blanking out now on who wrote it, but it was really good where she went to Sandusky, Ohio and rode along in one of these Trump boat parades. And it was exactly what you said, you know. These people were doing, had built these really successful small businesses, but they but they felt they were looked down on. They felt they felt people, you know, they felt people didn't give them respect and, and they were, had a lot of resentment. You know, it's funny because we talk all about that dichotomy, you know, all the time about how the torque involved in these positions, which are not really tenable in one person's mind, could also cause the frustration because perhaps they're not the self-reflection might not be there to understand inherently how these things don't really work together. Like I can remember hearing people complaining about how Brett Kavanaugh's life was ruined because of his, you know, the, uh, the process of uh, confirming him, right? He's ruined. And you want to say to them, well, he's got a, you know, it's a nice family. He's got a nice house. He's a Supreme Court justice for the rest of his life. Like, I don't see how this is anything but ruined. Um, and I, I wonder, I feel like that must be what kind of the, the, the agita is, is, um, is fueled by that, where they can't quite see it in themselves and self-reflect enough to understand it, but it is there subconsciously. And they know, like, yes, my life is pretty darn good, yet I need to be, I'm still angry, right? And I still need to find yeah. someone. I think that's the, the fear, I think, is what is where the politicians themselves that know they can get votes by saying that rhetoric don't realize necessarily how influential that becomes to the mindset of the people they're talking to, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. I think you're, I think you're making a, a great point there because it's, it's like we, you know, I mean, this, this thing that you just talked about, I mean, these feelings of lack of respect and resentment, I mean, these are the things that are really driving American politics right now. And yet it's like we don't have the right language to talk yeah. about them. They're, that they're there and people sort of understand it, but we don't really talk about it in the right way. I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, maybe the main reason I wrote my book was, um, like I was saying before, I felt I felt we weren't taking it back. We weren't peeling away all the layers of this, you know, that, I mean, one thing I've noticed in political coverage in the last year or two is now, now it's very well understood, you know, among political writers and I guess political junkies who read, who read that type of journalism. It's understood that the big divide in America right now is 
what we call the college-non-college divide. And yet, I just see so little analysis of why. So why? Why would why would that? You know, like, you know, for a hundred years we understood economic class divides. Like, you know, of course, you know, of course, the middle class would have resentments against the upper class, and it makes perfect sense. But the college-non-college divide is a little bit harder to understand. And so, I mean, my my feeling is you can't understand it unless you take a step or maybe two or three steps back and look at well what is college you know what is college in terms of when I when I mean that I'm not being facetious I mean what is what is college for because you know in in the public's mind the purpose of college has constantly changed you know from generation to generation you know I mean it's interesting because actually if, if you go back kind of before the period of my book like back to the early to the early um, 20th century uh, there was a lot more careers, careerism around college, just like there is today. You know that back then people kind of saw college as kind of more career training, and then it was really in the mid 20th century that this idea of liberal education, you know, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, um, became embedded, and you know the institutions embraced it and students embraced it. You know, I mean, one of the most fascinating things I learned in researching the book was. You know, UC, UCLA every year for decades did a survey of its freshmen to get their attitudes. And if you go back to like 1969, 1970, you'd find, um, you know, 70, 75% of students thought the purpose of going go, of going to college was to learn, to gain knowledge, to become to become a smarter, well, better informed person. And if you had, and in the last like 10 years, you have about 70 to 75 percent of students answering the question is to get a career, to get a job. You know, I mean, I mean that the the purpose of college has changed that much in, in just two generations. Um, you know, um, and uh, the, the ultimate question is, should higher ed- is, is higher education part of the public good in the sense of do all of us even those of us who aren't in college now or maybe didn't even ever go to college or, you know, uh, or if you're like me, my kids have already been through college, you know, um, uh, are, are all of us as citizens invested somehow in having a system of higher education that works? And if we are, then it should be supported by taxpayers and not, which would mean that we all share the cost as opposed to the privatized system in which the burden is put entirely on the individual, and since most individuals don't have the money that it, that it costs to get a college education nowadays, they have to take out these usurious loans. Um, um, you know, back if you go back to the 40s and 50s, we were very close. We never quite got there, but we were very close to the ideal of college as a public good. You know, tuition was very low. You know, I mean, you had, as you said, I mean, you had some fluky circumstances, and you had government happened to be interested in funding colleges because of the Cold War and defense research. So that was maybe an accident of, of history. But, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, my home state, not that long ago, as recently as 1980, the public universities in Pennsylvania were 75% taxpayer funded out of the state budget. Today, that figure is 25%. And um, what makes up for that is tuition. And, and when you say tuition, you're really you're really saying loans. So, 
Well, it's it's weird. It's it's almost like we're all interdependent on each other. And when we have education, uh, it leads to innovation and a healthy society. And whenever it is just about getting trained for a job, we all kind of suffer. That's a that's an odd thought. Right. And, you, you know, the if education were seen as, as, as a public good, there'd be other benefits as well. And this this really gets back to the whole January 6th thing. You know, one <clears throat> One unexpected place that doing this book took me to was, um, I, you know, I really wanted to think, I didn't want to just lay out the problem, but I wanted to think long and hard about once we acknowledge this problem, well, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, some of it, you know, obviously I think, you know, I support forgiving student loans. Um, you know, I think they were, they were mostly uh, derived out of bad faith, you know, and I, I think... I think we owe, it, owe that to those people to to for, forgive these loans. Uh, you know, I think I think we should work back towards public universities being free, being uh, part of the public good and supported by taxpayers, just like K through 12 education is. Um, but but another thing I get at, and the thing is, it's not going to be easy to get to that place, and especially uh, you know, given the given the conservative opposition that we know is in place you know it's going to be very hard to get to those places and you know is there is there is there kind of an intermediate place and uh i'm not sure if conservatives would support this either given their given their current state of mind possibly not but um it's been kind of too far in the background but there is a conversation out there about national service about 18 year olds um you know who who face this horrible pivot point, you know, you're 18, it's like, uh, do, do you go to college and take out this huge loan? Uh, do, do you risk not going to college? What do you do? Um, and, you know, I think I think we all agree that mandatory doesn't work, you know, we've seen with vaccines that, that for example, that mandatory doesn't work in this society, but if, if you made, if you had a universal system where there were, the government funded lots of opportunities for 18 year olds, to do a gap year of some kind of service, and, and I, you know, I'm not talking about military service, although I guess that could be a small part of it, but I'm talking mainly about civilian projects like the Civilian Climate Corps that's been talked about, which would be modeled after the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps of the New Deal, which was just wildly successful program where if you go to a national park today, you'll see the remnants of things that were built back in the 30s by, by these um, people that the government who were otherwise would have been unemployed that the government hired to build, uh, to rebuild our national parks, you know, and, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I focused a lot in, you know, World War II was in that, in that whole era was on my mind a lot in this book because it was the area that created the GI Bill, which, you know, was really the first time that we thought that uh, regular middle-class kids could, could benefit from college and the government had some stake in, paying for this even if it was only for veterans but you know at least at least we had that was really a step towards making higher education a public good but the other thing about the world war ii era is you know because of uh surviving the depression and then you know world war ii and defeating fascism i mean there was this kind of sense of shared national purpose and uh the fact that so many people had served together in the military during world war ii helped create some of those bonds and it even it was even better actually after the um, armed forces were desegregated after after world war ii but before the korean war i mean they did studies showing that 
people who served in desegregated units uh, came out of it with greater racial tolerance, you know? And so, so to me, the question is, how do we, you know, people are so isolated in their silos right now, whether it's privileged kids, whether it's kids from, you know, urban neighborhoods, whether it's kids from these rural areas and from countries, how do we, how do we bring people from different backgrounds together? How do we give them this opportunity, you know, to transition into adulthood that we do a terrible job at right now? And I think, I think a universal, you know, greatly expanded gap year for 18 year olds and national service would be great. I understand, you know, and I understand it's controversial, you know, for people, for people on the left, anything like that, you know, kind of conjures up the draft in Vietnam to some degree. And, and, and you're always going to get that kind of gut uh, negative reaction to it from some people, I think, on the left. And, and of course, on the right, uh, they don't believe, a lot of people don't believe in any kind of shared purpose, you know, that um, uh, this belief in individual, broken individualism uh, is a problem. But I would love to see a push. I mean, I think, you know, the GI Bill worked because you were able to get conservatives on board because it was a veterans program that benefited veterans. And, you know, um, I, I think if you could do some work to get some, some, you know, the handful of possibly sane Republicans who are out there on, on board with some kind of national service program, I think, I think it's a foot in the door towards society giving something back to its young people that we're not giving them today. So, yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. That's, that's a great point, because we had another guest on uh, recently who talked about the lack of, you know, uh, giving back to society. And my, and I was almost like being uh, facetious by saying, well, you sounds like you want to institute the draft. But I didn't really consider that you're right. There's a lot of other ways to be able to incorporate that uh, that doesn't have to be military service. And that's that's, you know, we would need a push for that. Uh, I, you know, I can't help but think, though, when I'm listening to this conversation, uh, I, I'm, I'm drawn to the movie. I don't know if we remember the movie um, uh, Breaking Away. Remember this movie? I, um, I, I, I love that movie. No, I remember it very well. Yeah. Great. Well, you know, and it's sort of about cutters, you know, the sort of the town folk from Bloomington who don't go to college in, in Indiana, and then the, and then the conflict they have with the, the students there. You're talking about my folks, Nick. You're talking I, about right. So, so here's the question now, because you know, it ended up being a nice movie, a nice story about a kid who wants to get out of his situation. He's writing. He's a really good cyclist, and and he's very cultured, even though he's not going to school, uh, going to college. Uh, I'm wondering if you rewrote that now. That story, I think, would be a thousand times darker, right? And it would be yeah. we would have. I, what, what would your impression be now when you have that kind of conflict between the uneducated, late and rural, rural America or the heartland versus, and versus like the elite college people? Right. Well, you know, this idea that you can only forge a happy ending by, like the title of the movie, by breaking away. You know, that if if you somehow, you know, through your individual pluck, which is this whole thing with rugged individualism. Uh, that you're such a character that you find a way to to rise above uh, your fate as a cutter, which which uh, you know the hero does through through bicycling, right? Through cycling, um, you know. Um, one thing, um, uh, and I have to, I have to confess, uh, probably like most people, I guess I, I knew nothing about this before I researched my book. But um, uh, the biggest the biggest government study ever of what the purpose of college should be was this blue ribbon panel that Harry Truman created right after World War II, kind of on the heels of the success of the GI Bill, called the Truman, known as the Truman Commission, 
that, that looked at higher education. And um, I, I learned a lot of fascinating things uh, reading up on this, you know, the, the way that they, they saw liberal education, uh, uh, you know, certainly as a way to possibly avoid a nuclear war, you know, to prevent the slide into fascism that uh, they've just seen in, in Germany and that maybe we're, maybe we just saw on January 6th, right? So, I mean, I found that really interesting. But another thing was also, I mean, they, they talked very clearly in their, in their report about moving towards a society where people found dignity in all, in all forms of work. You know, they explicitly mentioned that, that, the, uh, <clears throat> that this should be a goal. And I think, I think that's part of the attitude of when you make learning something for learning's sake uh, and, and don't judge the results based on what you do with it. In other words, uh, we're not judging your time in higher education as a success because you got a job at Facebook, but we're judging judging as a success because you know you know you've read you know you've read a bunch of great authors, you know, or um, you know you you just have a better understanding of the world, and maybe 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 you're the most well-read person in your town, and yet you're happy working as a cutter, you know, um, and that's okay. But we have a society where we don't say that's okay right now. You know, it's, uh, if you're a cutter, we're going to look down on you. you. Even if you're, you know, even if you're a, a cutter who's, uh, you know, out there reading great literature, it doesn't really matter. So um, um, that was this lofty idea that we had in this country once that uh, it just seems kind of quaint nowadays, which is unfortunate. And it'd be great, uh, you know, if, if we could kind of work back towards that. And we've been talking with Will Bunch, uh, opinion writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, the article is America gave up on truly educating all its kids. Jan then January 6th happened. Uh, he's also the author of the forthcoming book. I can't wait to read this, Will. I really can't. Uh, and that is resent you how college broke the American dream and divided the nation and how to fix it. Uh, Will, where, where can the good people find you? Um, uh, actually, the best place is just to... Um... Uh, go to the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer uh, to, to my author page, Will Bunch. Um, you, you can some people find me by using my old blog address, which still exists. Which was my blog was called Attitude, A T T Y T O O D, which is just a very <laughs> Philadelphia thing that's hard to explain if you're not from Philly. But um, although the site still works, but not all of my columns end up on there for some weird reason. It's too complicated for me to understand or to explain. But so. Uh, uh, I'll just go to that. Uh, also, I would uh, a good way to follow me is just to go to inquirer.com backslash bunch, B-U-N-C-H, and you can enter your email address and you sign up for my weekly newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday. And um, that that's free to anybody who signs up, even if you're not, uh, because uh, uh, if you try and read too many Inquirer articles, you'll probably come up against their paywall, like most modern news organizations. But um, the um, newsletter is not paywalled. You can just sign up and get it every Tuesday. So uh, I, I would I would love for people to do that. That would be great to, to stay in touch with all of, all of your listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, everybody. That was Will Bunch. Um, I'm I'm really glad we got Will on here, particularly with this article. It's something that I've been uh, sort of 
rolling around in my head a lot. Uh, again, I'm a liberal arts professor. I have seen liberal arts completely um, <laughs> unfunded, destroyed, as, of course, things like STEM have been pushed forward. Uh, it messes with critical thinking. It messes with our ability to imagine alternatives. And that is by design. Nick, I, I, I spent all weekend reading uh, documents around No Child Left Behind. And it's straight neoliberalism. The World Bank wants to prepare people for careers, to slot them into careers. You don't want to imagine new things. There's a system that you need to fit into. And it has really terrible consequences, really. I, I was a ground zero there. I, I was teaching No Child during No Child Left Behind in, in high school and, and giving out those tests. And you know what happened, though? They were going to do funding on, uh, based on the improvement from the first year oh. to the second year. And so I shit you not. Here it is. No, you're. I know exactly where this is going, yeah. and this is the problem. This is before yeah. we had like cell phones that were recorded, because I would have recorded this in the meetings with the faculty and the heads of the school. They told us we have to tank the first yep. year of yep. these tests so that we could show a lot more improvement and get more money the next year. Okay. I got to tell you, Jared, these tests aren't the worst things. Like, there's good stuff they need to learn. They need to know to, to be able to do well in college or just to be a good student overall. And so as a result, by following that, we a whole year worth of kids got a shittier education because of it, right? Yep. Like, that's what happened out of that. Um, it was awful. Well, I got, a, I got a question for you, Nick. Let's let's go let's go to yonder Soviet Union era Russia, right? And let's go back to Stalin, Stalinist Russia, okay? And 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 by the way, I, for those who aren't aware, like you cross Stalin, you end up either you know in Siberia or dead, <laughs> and no one knows where you went. Well, a huge bureaucracy grew up in the Soviet Union in which you were charged with, I, I, I don't know, making 100 rifles an hour, right? Nick, what do you think happened if you weren't able to meet your quota within this bureaucracy in which everything depended upon you meeting your quota? Do you think people made their quota all the time? No. What do you think that they did when they didn't meet their quota? Well, they probably disappeared, like you described, and, and people well, didn't know what happened to them. For a while, they disappeared, and then they got wise to it, and they realized that if they didn't meet their quota, they would be disappeared. Then they started lying. Hmm. And when they started lying, they just started saying, yeah, we did that, right? And now I want everyone to think about all the teachers who have been cheating on standardized tests, who have been leaking answers to students. Why? Because it's the difference between there being a school and there being an education or not. Quote unquote standards are fine. I get that. We've created this entire structure that is about privatizing. It's about creating charter schools. It's about giving, uh, it's about getting people like Betsy DeVos into the entire system to make not just millions, but possibly billions off of it if it's ever totally privatized. Plus also, you know, segregation. It's about putting uh, the people in this quote-unquote McDonald's track. It is a giant, giant mess, and it has had consequences that were both intended and consequences that these people didn't intend and were unaware would possibly happen. And it has put us in a really bad situation. Right, and, and even if they didn't intend those consequences, when you don't, 
critically think en enough yep. about these things, and you know, you should be able to see those things. That is when you get these things, these the, the, the negative yep. effects, and that's why we need smart people who are in earnest, who really do care about the country and care about the, our citizens, to be part of that process. That's what's so frustrating. Can you imagine, you know, when they're trying to do the Affordable Care Act with, under with, under Obama? And you know they're they're in earnest trying to create something that's going to you know drag people out of poverty and not have to deal with the uh, you know uh, life threatening um, bankruptcy from whatever they might have illnesses they have and then the other side who is arguing is the exact opposite of that take. Can you imagine even that trying to have a, a, a substantive conversation about healthcare when half of the people that are in charge of helping you fashion this are trying to kill people basically? That that's what's so frustrating. No, they, and, and the reason is because they have a religious faith in markets. They truly, honestly believe, like, within themselves, because, of course, this is about their own enrichment and their own empowerment, right? Neoliberals truly, honestly believe that everything is made better by the market. And then, by the way, people die in Texas when there's a freak snowstorm. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Or all of a sudden you look up and there's a fascist authoritarian movement because partly education's been screwed up. All of our social programs are absolutely evaporated. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, maybe I shouldn't have had a religious faith in this thing. Maybe I was wrong here. But they can't do it. They can't possibly reverse the course. So they just continue to go to markets and markets and markets. It, it's it's an absolutely destructive religious type faith. I know. And the problem is the religious part of that should be the thing that gets them to understand how important yep. it is to help other people. And that's yep. the bastardization of, of religion. That's why, you know, Marxism doesn't want have to have religion at all. But uh, it gets, well, like you said before, it gets replaced by something else anyway with the well, same so fervor. To go along with that. And this is something that's been driving me insane, Nick. As I've been trying to, like, talk to people and educate people about neoliberalism, people are like, oh, what's better, Republicans? It's like, no, you don't understand what neoliberalism means. You don't understand that this is – that I'm not saying liberal. And most people don't understand what liberal means, right? right? And they don't understand what capitalism actually is and what socialism is and Marxism is. You know, I thought Will hit on a good point there for a second, which is – we aren't given a framework. We're not taught how to understand what's going on and what fills the, the vacuum. Conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. right? And stories that, that are based on prejudices and our worst instincts. Like our education does not prepare us for this stuff. It doesn't make us think about things because it doesn't want us to think. It wants us to be cogs in a hole. And if, if you ever do come across any kind of class that will help you, it's it's an advanced level college class. You're not going to get exposed to that when, yep. you, when you would need it in, in high school. And yep. that's the other problem, too. And like maybe if you're lucky, you go to a really good private high school that has, you know, a good curriculum and whatever. But you're talking about, you know, a typical public school. They're not going to have any kind of critical thinking classes that everyone needs to take. And that's really that's why the best teachers are the ones who hint at things beyond their class. Oh, wait a minute. What I mean? Careful. Jared. Like, well, no, as you're talking, <laughs> you know what happens to those teachers now? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. But it's like the best teachers are the ones who take the, the material that they're supposed to teach. They teach that material, but they also gesture at a larger world, mm -hmm. right? They pique your interest. They make you go take other classes. They make you do research. They make you read books and think about things. That's the difference between a, a decent teacher and a great teacher is you're exactly right because these things are not on the curriculum. 
And the more that Republicans take over, you better damn well bet it's going to be more of this quote unquote McDonald track. Oh, right? Uh, yeah. Because that's what they care about. The things I would talk about in class, like during a math class I was teaching and that, that we get into a discussion about something else, I would be petrified to ever say anything like that ever again now because, yeah, you, you'd lose your job and you'd be, you know, uh, paraded in front of uh, the school board and all these horrible things. Uh, that's the climate we live in now, unfortunately, when, yes, it's it's an opportunity at times to be able to open up. For my, I, I taught a bunch of different uh, subjects for years, a year at a time. I used to do a crossword puzzle uh, in my English class, uh, you know, the Monday one, which is the easiest one of the week, you know. And uh, But that would always spark some other interesting conversation. Sure. I shudder to think what would happen now if I tried to do that. Well, what would happen would you would suddenly get a starring role in the CRT QAnon conspiracy theory world because yeah. you, they, all of a sudden you'd be at a school board meeting with a bunch of irate right-wing social media paranoids yelling at you saying that you're trying to indoctrinate their children and you know turn them into something else it's that that's why they're doing this is to keep people from from getting access to this information all right everybody uh thank you for hanging out with us uh you know we're so happy to be here in 2022 we have so much damn work to do we appreciate you coming along for the ride a reminder that we have an additional show on fridays the weekender all you have to do to gain access to that is go over to patreon.com slash muckrake podcast again that is patreon.com slash muckrake podcast you can also join the discord where the muckrake community hangs out some of the best people on the face of the earth you should go hang out with them see who they are form community that's what we have to do at this moment if you need us before the next show you can find nick at can you hear me smh you can find me at jy sexton stay safe everyone